Well, I guess really what most impressed me was that horrible race riot that they had sometime in the early 1920s. I was seven or eight years old at the time. And, of course, I was personally involved because uh, the colored woman that had been uh, doing our washing for years on Monday morning and doing our ironing on Tuesdays, uh, I showed up at our house on Wednesday and just scared to death. And my mother wanted to know, well, Lily, what is the matter? This isn't your day to come to work. And she says, oh, Miss Waters, can you hide me? They're burning down the town. And mother says, oh, they wouldn't do that. What? What is it? And she says, yes, all of the houses in our district in town are being set fire to. And mother didn't know whether to believe her or not, but she brought her in and poured her a cup of coffee and told her to sit down and and get hold of herself. And she never did quit shaking. But they, as they talked, my mother figured out figured out that the only place that she was sure of that nobody would probably look if they came looking for Lily was down through a trap door that went into our basement which was covered generally by a, a rug. And she gave Lily and this little girl she had with her uh, some blankets and pillows and some food and water. And they went down in this unfinished basement, which was not only unfinished, it was dirt floor and just not even a room. And uh, Mother went down and checked on her every now and then, and she stayed down in that place the whole day. And about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, the doorbell rang, and Mother went to the door, and there were two men standing there that said that they were police officers. And they wanted to know if the woman that worked here had come to work that morning. And Mother says she doesn't work here on Wednesdays. She only works here on Mondays and Tuesdays. And they said, well, I bet she's here. And Mother said, well, why do you think that? Well, I bet she's here. Mother said, well, come in and look. So they came in and searched every closet and every room in the entire house. And then they went out and searched the garage. Then they came back and Mother said, well, do you want to come back in and search some more? And they said, no, guess not. So they went on. And Mother called Dad and he was furious. He didn't believe in somebody coming in and searching his private property when he hadn't done anything wrong that he could figure it out. So he came home. And I remember that 
They got a call from the First Christian Church down at Ninth and Boulder asking if they had any cots, army cots, and blankets, and food, and any other bedding that they could take down there. So they got the army cots that they owned, which I think was about four, and took some food and blankets and bedding down to the First Christian Church. And I don't remember what happened to Lily. She wasn't at our house only just that one day. And I guess she must have gone with my dad down to the First Christian Church. But uh, my grandmother lived across the alley. She lived on Ninth and Lawton. And uh, across the alley from uh, Oklahoma Hospital. And uh, they turned Oklahoma Hospital into the receiving area for new for pregnant women in the colored section. And uh, so I sat on the back uh, stone fence behind my grandmother's house after they began to release the babies and their mother and watched these little teeny tiny blanket wrapped babies being sent home from Oklahoma Hospital at the end of that week. I don't know how many there were, but uh, I did enjoy seeing it and it was something that really impressed me. That was a recorded interview from years ago with Virginia Waters Poulton, courtesy of the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum. Poulton was a white woman who lived in Tulsa at the time of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. She was describing her family's efforts to save a Black domestic employee who worked for her family at the time the massacre occurred. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, by now you've probably heard me mention several times the potentially hundreds of people that were killed in the Tulsa Race Massacre. As a journalist, I know from firsthand experience that sometimes when reporting on or covering a tragedy that has a massive number of casualties, those numbers can take the place of the identity of the victims themselves, in that those victims become numbers without faces, names, character, family, friends, careers, etc. So in the next few episodes, as we continue our deep dive into the actual Tulsa Race Massacre, I'm going to do my best to highlight some of the actual people who were killed in the massacre, not only describing the nature of their deaths, but who they were in life. 
In that vein, one of the most prominent people killed in the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 was a doctor by the name of A.C. Jackson. According to the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, Dr. Jackson is described as a physician who, quote, transcended the color line, servicing both white and colored patients, end quote. The Tulsa Race Riot report by the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, dated February 28, 2001, describes more than a dozen Black physicians in Tulsa in 1921, including Dr. Jackson. It reads, quote, In nearby buildings were the offices of nearly all of Tulsa's Black lawyers, realtors, and other professionals. Most impressively, there were 15 African-American physicians in Tulsa at the time of the riot, including Dr. A.C. Jackson, who had been described by one of the Mayo brothers as the, quote, most able Negro surgeon in America, end quote. Just for historical clarification, the Mayo brothers mentioned in that passage refer to brothers Charles Horace Mayo and William James Mayo, both American physicians and surgeons who led the development of the Mayo Clinic into a world-class center for medical treatment and research. The Tulsa World, the only daily newspaper in Tulsa and the second largest newspaper in Oklahoma, published a timeline of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 on October 24, 2019. This is what it says about Dr. Jackson, quote, the most prominent Tulsan killed in the massacre was Dr. A.C. Jackson, a 40-year-old surgeon living at 523 North Detroit Avenue. According to Dr. Jackson's white neighbor, former police commissioner and retired judge John Oliphant, Jackson had raised his hands to surrender to a group of whites when two of them shot Jackson dead in what Oliphant called, quote, cold-blooded murder. Born in Memphis and raised in Guthrie, where his father was a law officer, Jackson graduated from Meharry Medical College in Nashville, practiced for a while in Tulsa and Claremore, then trained as a surgeon in Memphis. His work was such that he attracted the attention of the Mayo brothers, and in 1919, he returned to Tulsa as a specialist in chronic diseases and surgery for women. Jackson lived in what was one of the most exclusive blocks in all of Greenwood. His neighbors included Booker T. Washington High School principal E.W. Woods, Tulsa Star publisher A.J. Smitherman, and physician R.T. Bridgewater. Why Jackson, one of the gentlest men, would have been singled out is not known. Perhaps he was mistaken for the more outspoken Smitherman or Bridgewater. Perhaps he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The massacre had all but died down, Oliphant said, when Jackson, quote, came walking toward me with his hands in the air. Here I am. I want to go with you, he said. A body of about seven men, all armed, intercepted him, and two young fellows fired on him. He fell to the ground, and one of the men fired again, end quote. Jackson's killers were never identified. The Tulsa Race Riot report by the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921 published the actual testimony of Mr. Oliphant, again, a white attorney who lived nearby Dr. Jackson. This is what it said, quote, 
The most infamous incident involving white civilians imprisoning African-Americans was that which concerned Dr. A.C. Jackson, Tulsa's noted black surgeon. Despite the increase in gunfire, Dr. Jackson had decided to remain inside of his handsome home at 523 North Detroit along the shoulder of Standpipe Hill. But when a group of armed whites arrived in his front lawn, Jackson apparently walked out the side door of his home with his hands up, saying, here I am, boys, don't shoot. What happened next was later recounted by John A. Oliphant, a white attorney who lived nearby in testimony he provided after the riot. Question, about what time in the morning did you say it was Dr. Jackson was shot? Answer, right close to eight o'clock, between 7.30 and eight o'clock. Question, Dr. Jackson was a Negro. Answer, yes, sir. Question, and he was coming toward you and these other men at the time he was shot. Answer, yes, sir coming right between his house, right in his yard between his home and the house below him. Question, what did these men say at the time he was shot? Answer, they didn't say anything, but they pulled down on him. I kept begging him not to shoot him. I held him a good bit and I thought he wouldn't shoot, but he shot him twice and the other fellow on the other side and he fell, shot him and broke his leg. Question, one man shot him twice? Answer, yes, sir. That is my recollection now. Question, Then another one shot him through the leg? Answer, yes, I didn't look at that fellow. Question, these same men that shot him carried him to the hospital? Answer, no, they didn't. Question, what did they do? Answer, I've never seen them after that. I don't know a thing about what became of them. Dr. Jackson died of his wounds later that day. Up next someone who knew Dr. A.C. Jackson when he was living and working in Tulsa. Wilhelmina Guess-Howell is one of a number of survivors who've gone on record about their experience in the Tulsa Race Massacre before passing away. We heard from Mrs. Howell previously in this podcast. Similar to many survivors, Mrs. Howell, a school teacher for more than 40 years, did not begin to talk about the massacre until much later in life. She was 87 at the time of the recording you're about to hear, which was made during a documentary interview several decades ago with author and historian Eddie Faye Gates. Howell's relatives were pioneers in Oklahoma. She moved to Tulsa with her family when she was four years old and lived in the Greenwood District, also known as Black Wall Street, after they lost her three-year-old brother in a house fire at their previous home in McAllister, Oklahoma. Mrs. Howell came from a prominent family that was what might come to mind when you try to imagine people who lived in Black Wall Street. She graduated from Howard University, just like her father. Some of her family members lived in Oklahoma and eventually Tulsa long enough to experience the economic growth spurred by the oil boom of the era. Her father was a lawyer and several uncles were doctors, including Dr. A.C. Jackson. She was afraid of her brother. She had two younger brothers my mother did. Uh, they, one was Dr. Jackson, by the way, I have his picture there on the table. Um, the man was a, I thought he was great as a physician. In fact, he saved me. I had time for a malaria fever when I was about seven years old. I lived down on Elgin Street, 317 North Elgin, and he lived next door, and that man was over there, he saved me. And I appreciate that very much. But unfortunately, he was murdered during the, the race right here in Tulsa. Um, he was coming out of his house, he'd worked late that night, and they had started burning up on Detroit Street. He lived up there on Detroit Street, and they um, 
start burning. And so he, um, he had come in late off of a case. He was a house doctor. And uh, he had a caretaker there in the house. And um, they said, I believe I smell smoke. And of course, the house was on fire. They were setting fire to the houses. The mob was at that time. So they came out the back door and came up the front, kind of a hill, like on the North Detroit Street. I believe it was the six, five or 600 block. And the white neighbors across the street said, oh, that's Dr. Jackson. Don't bother him. And at that time, this mob of young boys had shotguns, and they just shot into him. And uh, we took him to Guthrie, where he had grown up after they left Memphis, Tennessee, and buried him in Guthrie, where my grandparents were buried. And um, that was my mother's brother. I regret it very much, because, as I said, he saved me when I had typhoid malaria fever when I was young. Not only that, uh, it was a good physician, I think. As mentioned previously, many survivors of the massacre did not talk about the attack afterwards. Whether they stayed and rebuilt in Tulsa or whether they left for good, there were a number of reasons for this. For some, it was too traumatizing. Others remained mum about the massacre because they saw their silence as a way of protecting their children and children's children from experiencing the potential horrors that they lived through. And still, Many were forced into silence by bad actors who threatened their jobs and even their lives. We'll explore this more later in the podcast. For now, suffice to say, because of the decision many survivors made to remain largely silent for much of their lives about the Tulsa Race Massacre, many descendants of survivors lived for years without any or much knowledge of the massacre, let alone any knowledge that their own ancestors and relatives survived the experience. This was the case for Tulsa native Brenda Nails Alford. So, Brenda Nails Alford, you are a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Your family has a long history in Tulsa. And we're talking today about your family that survived the massacre and sort of what, if anything, they could tell you about it. And so one of the things I think is important for this project is to hear from people who have either firsthand accounts or secondhand accounts, but are connected to somebody who was there that day, that tragic day. We've got a lot of recordings that were done with some of the survivors, but I think it's important to talk to people like you who are descendants of survivors as well, because you can really feel what was passed down, intangible things that were passed down over the generation. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how your family even came to live in Tulsa? Okay. My name is Brenda Nels Alford, and I am the granddaughter of James and Bassanore Nels Sr., who, along with my great-uncle Henry Nels, were the owners of the Nels Brothers Shoe Shop and Record Shop, located at 121 North Greenwood Avenue. My family migrated to Tulsa in the early 1900s from Texas. As many others did, they basically had heard that there was an opportunity to do well in Oklahoma. And so like so many others, they migrated to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some of our family settling in McAllister, Oklahoma, and then the rest coming on to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, so they, they were part we, of that land run, I guess, wave of folks coming in. Yes, yes. Our family was here during the early 1900s, as I said, and migrated to Tulsa from uh, McAllister, Oklahoma. Yep. 
Gotcha. So they were business people. They were entrepreneurial in spirit. Yes, they were. They were the owners of the shoe shops. We had several locations in the Greenwood community. They were also the first owners of what is now Lacey Park, wherein the Nails Dance Pavilion and Skating Rink was located. And they also operated a chauffeur and taxi service. So they were very, very entrepreneurial-minded people, as most of the people were during that time. And I understand that they did very, very well. Did your family ever tell you about what it was like before the race massacre happened to be a Black entrepreneur in Tulsa at the time who was doing very well for themselves? Unfortunately not. I grew up knowing about our family businesses as a kid, but I did not find out the race massacre aspect of our family history until about 2003. Wow. When I would receive a, yes, when I would receive a notification from a legal entity here in Tulsa, notifying myself and many others that the survivors and descendants of survivors were being included in a lawsuit against the city of Tulsa regarding reparations stemming from the 1921 race riots, as it was termed at that time. That's how I found out about the race massacre and our family history, and it was pretty devastating. Did you have any knowledge of the race massacre before that at all? You know, I had heard about the race massacre. You started hearing about it in the late the mid to late 90s is when I started hearing about it. And as I contemplated, as I began my journey to find the rest of our family's story regarding the race massacre, as I fell back, I thought of stories I used to hear as a little kid. They were, quote unquote, grown folk conversation. But I remember knowing that my grandmother had to hide in a church for some reason, but I didn't know why. I was very, very young and I didn't of course, no other questions to ask at that time. I wish I had. But I remember that vaguely. And I remember that when whenever we passed by the Oakland Cemetery on Peoria and 11th Street, especially when we would have family members come home to visit and we'd be going passing by there. And as a little kid, I'd hear the grown folks say, you know, you know, they're still over there referring to the cemetery. And everybody in the car, they would agreed, yes, they're still over there. And they kind of shake their heads and would go on. And I always had to think about that cemetery as a little girl growing up because I was like, you know, wondering what's over there. Mm. And of course, many years later, I would understand exactly what they were talking about. Was it a real cemetery or was it sort of done in yes, haste? Yes, Oakland Cemetery. Uh, in fact, we all are on a committee uh, basically overseeing the mass graves where people were buried after the race massacre. We're basically uh, doing monitoring and we're basically studying certain cemeteries wherein bodies are said to have been buried after the race massacre. Gotcha. So you learned about this horrific event later in life, as you were obviously an adult at the time, you'd gone your entire childhood and, and adulthood until that point. What was your reaction in 2003 when you learned about your family's involvement in the massacre? I remember reading the document five times, wondering to myself, why was I receiving it? And what exactly did it mean? It was just, uh, it was devastating. And it was heartbreaking to know that People that you loved and who loved you and who gave you their best were treated in this manner. 
it was very hard. It's very heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah, I can't really imagine as I've interviewed all these people and listened to all the recordings, it's still really hard to imagine. If you don't mind, if I can ask you about it, there was a different socioeconomic classes of people, right, in Tulsa at the time. Your family was one of those families that did really well. Had your family, even in Texas, had they always been sort of entrepreneurial or sort of self-sufficient in that way? Or was it something of necessity that they had to do? Because like a lot of people, a lot of Black people in Tulsa, they really couldn't engage in the larger economy because of discrimination and segregation. Mm-hmm. So what was their motivation behind all of their businesses? My grandfather was a very proud college-educated shoemaker. And there's a quote in one of the books, one of the first accounts after the race massacres that was written by a lady named Mrs. Mary Parrish, Mrs. Mary Jones Parrish. She wrote the book, Events of the Tulsa Disaster. And one of the things that she wrote in her book was a little paragraph where she basically talks about Tulsa, the Greenwood area, before, during, and after the race massacres. And one of the things she says about my family is the following. Mr. Henry and J.H. Nails are two of Tulsa's leading businessmen. Before the disaster, they owned a modern shoe shop with all machinery needed to conduct a high-class shop. Their loss was estimated at over $4,000. Since the disaster, they have reopened in their quarters at 121 North Greenwood, and in addition to having a well-equipped shop, they carry a full line of Black Swan records. Mm. That was written in 1921. Mm. Mrs. Parrish wrote this book several days after. She was interviewing various uh, members of the community and writing accounts of this days after the race massacre. This is one of the first accounts of the race massacre. That's amazing. And did she it say is. in did she say in the book what happened to your family's businesses during the massacre? She basically talked about very many people in the community what happened. You know, she gave an account of what happened those two days that there was just carnage. She basically is just saying that the mobs were going through the community uh, burning making people come out of their homes at gunpoint, shooting at them. Um, planes were flying overhead, dropping what amounts to Molotov cocktails. You know, some people survived the carnage, some people didn't. And it was just a, a horrendous occasion. It was, it was horrendous. Yeah, and your family, you mentioned their survivors, your grandparents. It was on my father's side, his mother, my grandmother. And my great-grandmother uh, was also a survivor. She is buried at Oakland Cemetery, which, which is one of the focuses of the mass graves. She uh, did not perish in the massacre. Uh, she died in 1925, a few years after the race massacre, but she is buried at Oakland Cemetery, wherein, ironically, uh, many were buried after the race massacre in mass graves. And we're trying to find you know, evidence. We have the evidence of that. We're trying to find those mass graves to bring some justice to those people who were buried in those graves and give them the due respect that they deserve. 
And your grandmother, your father, your grandmother, what about your grandmother's husband, which would be your grandfather? Did he survive? Yes, my grandfather survived. My grandparents survived along with my great uncle, Henry. Also, their then two-year-old daughter, the late Dr. Cecilia Nels Palmer, who I said was the first black professor, would become the first black professor at the University of Tulsa in later years. But it's really amazing that people who survived such a horrible occasion, they stayed, they rebuilt. They raised the families to, to be positive and to, you know, to keep moving forward in spite of what they endured in life. As the granddaughter, uh, my grandparents raised my father to, to be that way and basically raised my sister and I that way. And I'm just, I'm grateful. Sure. Because they I, had every reason to do, do otherwise. <laughs> right, exactly. Actually, I was going to ask, does your family or do they ever talk about how they managed to survive the massacre, how they managed to live to tell about it? My grandparents, uh, basically, in the book, They Came Searching by Eddie uh, Faye Gates, uh, there was an interview done in her book by my late uncle, uh, wherein uh, they document that my grandfather had shared that our family Neighbors and friends ran for their lives from the Greenwood community to a park that was located miles away from where they lived, only to return to find their homes and their businesses looted and burned to the ground. Gotcha. And in the days that followed, how soon after did they start to pick up the pieces, sift through the rubble, and try to rebuild their lives? As soon as they were allowed to be able to come back to the community, they were gathered up uh, along with many others and taken to internment camps, if you will, wherein they were treated like second, third class citizens. They were treated horribly. So I'm sure that the process of getting back to restarting their businesses, it took a while because there were you know, other situations that were going on within the community at that same time. In the next episode, we'll hear from more descendants of survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre as we work through one of the most violent racial events in the nation's history. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to follow and like us on social media. That includes our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Just search Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you visit our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com, where you'll find more resources about the Tulsa Race Massacre and where you can subscribe and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on all of our episodes. Mm -hmm.